Amen. Good morning. How you doing this morning? Go ahead and give somebody a hug. Show somebody some love. Oh, see, you guys, you guys, you guys are like, oh, this is too weird for me. This is the wrong church to be at. This is not what Christians do. We don't love each other. Think about the words. Thank you, Jeff, for that. That was all. Oh, that just blessed my heart. Listen, check this out. Jesus said this. They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. I didn't say that. He said that. So anyway, it is so good to have you all here. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Pastor Jose. I'm the lead pastor here. And today we are diving in into a new series entitled Christmas at the Movies. Christmas at the Movies. Listen, we're just going to have some fun. We're going to have some fun, but we're going to look to God's word. All right, everything that we do here is all centered around God's word. You've been here long enough, or, or if this is your first time, here's what we can assure you of. We are not here to give you our opinion. We're not here to give you our slant on what the, God, or the word of God says. We are here simply to point you to the truth that God's word declares. And at the end of the day, hey, the Holy Spirit does his job. He speaks to us. He teaches us. He builds us. He encourages us. He comforts us. He strengthens us. And so as I said, we're kicking off a new series today entitled uh, Christmas at the Movies. And we just want to have a little fun with, with uh, some themes that we're pulling from some Christmas movies. And we're going to look to God's word to see what the story of Christ in Christmas says about these things. So today we'll be starting with a scene from the movie How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Check it out. That's more like it. Excellent year. I'll tell you, Max, I don't know why I ever leave this place. I've got all the company I need right here. Hello! Hello! How are you? How are you? I asked you first. I asked you first. Oh, that's really mature, saying exactly what I can. I'm an idiot! Hey, I want you to join me in saying this this morning. Don't be a Grinch. Got to tell somebody, don't be a Grinch. Got to tell yourself, don't be a Grinch. No, no, don't look at somebody else and say, now you're supposed to be telling yourself, don't be a Grinch. Let me tell you what I'm talking about here. Have you ever been alone? We've all been alone at some point. Have you ever been that kind of person who at some point you've just said, just leave me alone. I just want to be all by myself. I don't need nobody else. Just let me be. Well, I got news for you. The central theme 
of Christmas can be wrapped up in this one single phrase. God is with us. God is with us. Let me tell you why I share that with you as we get started here today. Because many times we will choose to live life alone, or maybe we just feel alone. We feel like we're not surrounded by people. We feel like we're lacking something. We feel like uh, we're not loved. We feel like we're not provided for. We feel like we lack encouragement. We feel like we don't have help. And that can be the furthest thing from the truth. Because when God decided to reveal himself as a man, the very first thing that he announced, the most important thing, that he wanted to make clear is this. I'm with you. I am with you. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles today to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1 verses 26 through 38. And I'll tell you why we're starting here. Because if it's very interesting that when God brought forth the message that the Savior was to be born, and he announced it, he announced it to a young woman by the name of Mary. And here's what's interesting. She was alone. And then he catches Joseph alone. And he gives him the same message. And the assurance in that message was, you're never alone. God is with you. Now, I know that for some of us, that's too simple. Oh, come on, pastor. We got to go deeper than that. What else do you need when you know that God is with you? What else do you need? It's a simple message. See, God keeps it simple. And so we're going to look first to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 26, and we're going to read to verse 38, and then we're going to shift over to the book of Matthew. But starting at verse 26 in Luke 1, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings. You who are highly favored, watch this, the Lord is with you. Now, might not mean much to you, but let's note Mary's response to this message. Verse 29 says that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting that this might be. Now, I'll share something with you. See, second service, you guys get a little extra. I didn't even think of this until right now. You know, the Lord was just showing me something. It, you got to understand something that in the Jewish culture and in these times, to even say the word God in their understanding was blasphemy. It was blasphemy. To even declare that God could be with men, it was a no-no. Because no one was worthy of that privilege. So you see, if you really start thinking about why Jesus was crucified, he was crucified because he dared to say that he was the son of God. He dared to say that God loved him. He dared to say that God loved the world. He dared to say 
I can only do what the Father shows me to do. I can only speak what I hear from him. And so Jesus was always presenting this intimate relationship with God. And people couldn't accept that. Because it just didn't fit into the understanding of religious people and the world that they existed in. And so thus we find Mary and this angel presents herself, himself to her. That would have been enough for me. But she, the, the Bible says that this angel Gabriel says to her, Hey, you... Highly favored in the sight of God. The Lord is with you. And the Bible says in verse 29 of Luke 1 that it troubled Mary. And that she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Verse 30, but the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? In other words, God, this don't make no sense. Number one, I'm a virgin. There's no man that this is happening with. So how is this actually going to work? Number two, who am I that you would give me this message? And so the angel responds to her and says, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even your relative, uh, Elizabeth, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who who was to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And then watch what Mary says. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled to me. Hey, I want you to consider something here. I want you to just take these words at face value. I want you to envision yourself alone. I want you to envision yourself apart from God. I want you to envision yourself that possibly while you know God, you live without an understanding of God. Just envision that. Imagine that. Imagine living life and believing in God, or maybe you don't believe in God. But whatever the case is, God doesn't factor much into your life doesn't factor into the equation of how you make choices, how you approach life, how you respond to it, how you feel about yourself, how you see your circumstances. None of that factors in. And here God is not just saying to Mary, but saying to you and I, may not make sense, but I'm with you. Now imagine this. If our attitude, if your attitude was this one every single time, Lord, be it unto me as you say, you're with me. Mary became convinced that God was with her. She got past all the excuses. She got past all all the things that defied the religious rules of the day. She got past all that. And so, mind you, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 23. And this is 
when God sends the same message to Joseph, the man who was to marry Mary. And watch what he says to him. It says now in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, in other words, he was religious, he followed the religious rules of the day, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had mind to divorce her quietly. Quick fun Bible fact. In those days, for a woman to have a child out of wedlock was equivalent to her eventually being stoned to death. So, Joseph says, man, I get that she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit, but everybody's going to think that we had this child out of wedlock. And so I'm going to put her away quietly. I'm going to divorce her quietly, let nobody notice, so that she's not disgraced, so that she's not ultimately put to death. And so in verse 20 it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's doing something there. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. As all this took place, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Listen closely. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means, watch the announcement, God with us. God with us. What I love about these two instances recorded in Scripture is that while it talks about how God made this announcement to a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary, a young girl named Mary, it's not a story that we can't relate to. See, God initiates relationship with us. He's not seeking for us to initiate relationship with him. And the beauty of that is this, that every time you can be assured of this one truth, that God is simply saying, I just want to be with you. Where you go, I'll go. I know we sing that song, where you go, I'll go, where you stay, I'll stay. You know, we're very Christian when we sing that song. But it's actually the other way around. God says, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. And mind you, it's regardless of what you do to be right with God. I'm going to show you that in Scripture in a second. And so look, as it was declared to Mary and as it was, it was declared to Joseph, so it's also declared to us even until this day that God has brought someone extremely great into our midst. And he has announced and brought, and brought into our lives a kingdom that brings all that is good and, and will reign in our lives forever. The good news of Christmas is Christ is with you. God loves you. And nothing can change that. The scriptures declare this, that no height, no depth, no width, no length. Watch this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Let me put it to you this way. 
Your feelings can't separate you from the love of God. Your insecurities can't separate you from the love of God. Your past can't separate you from the love of God. Your hurt can't separate you from the love of God. The things that people tell you can't separate you from the love of God. Religion can't separate you from the love of God. No thing that you do, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. And so it reminds me of a moment in the, man of, in the life of a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. And this guy Zacchaeus was someone that everyone knew. Everybody knew who Zacchaeus was. We're going to be looking at Luke uh, 19 in a second. But everyone knew who Zacchaeus was. You see, Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector of his day. You know what that means? He was the guy that was a Jew that worked for the Roman Empire. And his job was to go and collect taxes from everyone amongst the Jewish people. Now that might not mean much to you, but here's the problem that Zacchaeus faced on a daily basis. Zacchaeus worked for his oppressors who despised him because he was a Jew, because he did not believe and live according to their pagan ways. So he was filth to them, but they used him. And Zacchaeus, while he was a Jew and lived amongst these Jewish people, Zacchaeus daily faced the rejection of his own Jewish countrymen. You know why? Because he was a tax collector. So here's how it worked in those days. The tax collector would show up and say, time to pay up your taxes, brother. You should pay those taxes. There you go. All right, you pay those taxes. Right? But then here's what Zacchaeus would do in his fellow tax collectors. He would say, now give me mine as well. See, it was bad enough that he was working for his oppressors in oppressing his people with undue taxes. But Zacchaeus and all tax collectors of their day were known to be crooked people because they sought their own gain. And so if you didn't pay me the taxes that you owe to Rome, and you didn't give me mine, then guess what? In Rome's eyes, my brother Danny, he didn't, that brother right there, he didn't pay his taxes. Meanwhile, it's in my pocket. And so do you understand what Zacchaeus' situation was? Everybody knew who Zacchaeus was. Everybody was on edge when Zacchaeus came. Everyone had seen Zacchaeus come up the ranks. But while Zacchaeus was known by everyone and walked amongst many, he was alone. And in the midst of this predicament is where we begin to discover how everything changed for Zacchaeus. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke 19, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And it says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now I want to pause right there for a moment uh, because it's, that's a very important statement. This place, Jericho, in this day, was not just any ordinary place in the region. Jericho was a place where religious people resided. Jericho was known as a place 
where Levitical, the Levitical priesthood would stay. And so these were people that performed religious duties. They performed sacrifices. They tended to the temple. They ministered to people's needs. They prayed. They did all these Christian things, so to speak. And so Jesus is passing through Jericho. What does that tell us? Jesus was walking amongst a bunch of people who thought they knew God. Who thought they were seeking God. And so verse 1 says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. So we know this. That Zacchaeus is there for a purpose. It says that he was a chief tax collector. And watch this. He was wealthy. So what can we conclude here? Zacchaeus was good at being crooked. Zacchaeus was good at doing his job. Zacchaeus was in Jericho doing what he had been called to do, to collect taxes, but he was also doing a little extra. He was filling his own pockets in the midst of it. And so verse 3 says that he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And so here's basically what's happening. A bunch of people get wind of the fact that Jesus is in Jericho. And some of them have questions. Who's this? Is that the Jesus that everyone's been talking about? Is this the guy that claims to be the son of God? Wait, I heard that he raised someone from the dead. Isn't this the guy that opened up the blind eyes of your cousin? Isn't this the guy that fed 5,000? Isn't this this guy that has done all these great things? So the masses begin to come out. And Zacchaeus is strolling on by, and he gets wind of the fact that Jesus is coming through. See, Zacchaeus had heard of this Jesus, but he'd never seen him. And so his curiosity is piqued, and the Bible says that he notices where Jesus, the direction Jesus is heading in, and he heads further yonder to meet him at the pass, so to speak. And so the Bible says that he climbs up a tree because he's trying to see Jesus, but he can't see over the crowd because he's a little limited in height. Verse 5 says that when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Watch this. I must stay at your house today. How does that relate to life? How's that practical for us? Let me tell you something. Don't we begin to see here that while we think it's contingent upon us looking for God, what we fail to realize is this, that he's looking for us. Listen, this guy is up on a tree and he just wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. He doesn't feel like he belongs amongst the crowd. As a matter of fact, he probably doesn't even feel worthy of it. And as he's passing by, what we see is that while there are many needs amongst Jesus all around him, 
Maybe some sickly people, maybe some people that are hurting, maybe some people that are seeking truth and and trying to find out, is this really true that God is with us? In the midst of that, Jesus takes note of none of them. He notices the one that no one wants to notice. He notices the one that doesn't deserve it. Hey, that's your story and mine. He notices us. So, the Bible says that Jesus says, come down from there, Zacchaeus, immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so the Bible says that in verse 6 that Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter. He's going to the house of the sinner." Doesn't this guy, Jesus, know who this guy Zacchaeus is? Doesn't he know that this very guy is the same one that has stabbed his own countrymen, the people from his birthright, from his nation, the people with the promises of God, that he's stabbed them all in the back, that he's extorting them, that he's robbing them, that he's living off of them unjustly? Doesn't he know that this guy is a crook? He's going to his house. Tell you how that relates to you and I. See, God loves you in spite of your shortcomings. God's not concerned with your shortcomings. He paid a price too high to look so low. I'm going to show you that from Scripture in a second. Because for some of us, maybe to this day, we struggle with this idea this sense of worthlessness. We struggle with this sense of inferiority in the eyes of God. We feel like we're not good enough. We feel like we have to do something to get right with God, that we have to change something on our own volition in order to somehow be better for God. You can't change the best thing that God did in Christ for you. You can't change it. And guess what? We can't add to it either. We can't add to it. We can't add to it. And so the Bible says that Jesus says, come down, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus comes down and the people begin to mutter and they say, can you believe it? He's going to this man's house, this sinner, this two-bit, rotten, no-good-for-nothing Jewish traitor. The Bible says in verse 8 that Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Change of heart took place there. The Bible says that Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Seek and save the lost. Listen, if there's anyone that didn't deserve to be noticed by Jesus at that moment, it was Zacchaeus. And yet that's the very first one that God noticed. Romans chapter 3 verses 23 through 27 puts it this way. It says, for everyone has sinned. 
We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, <laughs> in His grace, watch this, freely makes us right in His sight. You know what that word freely there means in the original Greek language? You know what it means? You know what it means, Nick? It means free. Free. It's free. It's completely free. It's, hey, it's like, hey, man, that's my phone, but now it's your phone. And here's, here's, here's what many of you do. Oh, bless. Thank you so much. I'm so blessed by that. But I can't. No, I can't accept that. And then we say, no, no, I insist. You must. And we go, no, no, no. Please, I, I appreciate it, but I don't, you don't have to do that. And, and, and God says, no, no, I insist, it's yours. And here's what we're trying to do the whole time, give it back. And then when we realize he's not taking it back, here's what we try and do. We say, well, let me give you something for it. Let me pay you something. Let me do something for you, God, so that I can somehow feel like I've earned this. Can I tell you something about relationship with God? You don't have to do anything to earn it. It is freely yours. Freely yours. Freely yours. It's free. Say this with me. It's free and it's for me. So watch this. It says, he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Did you just get what the scripture says right there? That completely blows out of the water. Any thought that says that somehow you are guilty and you owe God for something. The Bible, God himself declares this, that he did this through Christ Jesus and he freed us from the penalty for our sins. You know what the Bible's saying there? You're not guilty. You're not guilty. But you don't understand my past. No, you don't understand you're not guilty. You don't understand that. Oh, but what about all the mistakes that I make? You're not guilty. What about all the things that I will do? You're not guilty. What about all the things that I'm struggling with right now? You're not guilty. You're not guilty. You're not guilty. Listen, I've had occasion in, 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 in my years of life to work with people who've been formerly incarcerated and have struggled with the challenges of reentering. You know what's the one thing that many people who've been in that predicament struggle with? It's with this mindset that says, I'm broken. There's no opportunity for me. I can't make it. Who's going to give me a chance? You don't understand. I carry the weight of this past. I've got this criminal record. And so what we do is we walk around in life and we're trying to make it. And we go, but you don't understand my situation. You don't understand the struggles that I'm going through. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand how hard it is. You don't understand. I'm, I, I can't make it. You don't understand how, how, how heavy this is on me. I can't get past this. People don't let me go. If you would just let go and realize that God himself declares you're free. You're free. It's not your issue. Why carry it? He declares that you are free indeed. And so the penalty has been paid for. Verse 25 says, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding blood. You know what it's saying there? 
that you're made right when you become convinced, I don't owe God anything. I don't owe God anything. It's not mine to carry. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Whoa. Watch this. God demonstrates how righteous he is by providing forgiveness for all humanity. You're not guilty. You're not guilty. You know, it's one of the biggest lies ever told till this day. We focus so much on sin, 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 sin. We go to church week in and week out, and for some of us, we've been told you're a sinner saved by grace. You're a sinner saved by grace. Well, let me ask you, which one are you, a sinner or a saint? Which one are you, saved or stuck? Listen, God's not schizophrenic. He's not. God doesn't exist between two worlds. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here's what he declares. You are righteous because of what I've done through Jesus Christ. In his sight. Hmm. Verse 27 says, can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? Can any of us say, God, I did this so that you could accept me? He says, no. I didn't say that, by the way. God says that. He says, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. Faith in what? Faith in that what Jesus did is good enough and it is done. It is a done deal. See, God is with you because he loves you, not because you love him. <laughs> Let me say that again. God is with you because he loves you, not because you love him. And so one thing that we know, getting back to the story from the scriptures, is that wherever Jesus went, he met great needs. And at this very moment, while many needs were present, Jesus holds the hands of time to call one that no one wants and everyone despises. And he does something that shocks everyone. He decides that he wants to engage in one of the most intimate ways known to Jewish people of the day. Know what it was? He was telling Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I got to come to your house and I got to break bread with you. I want to be with you. You know, Revelations chapter 3, verses 17 through 20 says this. This is Jesus dictating a letter to the Apostle John while he's on an island called Pathos, uh, Patmos. And, and, and he, uh, he says, write this letter to this church. And he says, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked without God. That's what he's talking about. 
So I advise you to buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire, and then you will be rich. Also, buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. Now, let me just pause right there because after first service, somebody came up to me and asked me a question about that. They were saying, how do you talk to somebody about that when the Bible says that he disciplines those that he loves? You know what we hear when we hear that word discipline? Yeah, we we think papao, right? That's what we think. If you're like me, you're thinking about hangers (laughs) and extension cords, right? And, And whatever else is in the vicinity that somebody can grab and use to discipline you. That's how I grew up. But you know, the truth is that the Bible says, it's it's interesting, I was sharing this yesterday with, with a few people that I was meeting with. But the Bible says that God, God's word is inspired by God. And that by his word, He teaches us, he reproves us, he corrects us, he instructs us in all righteousness, and he thoroughly equips us unto every good work. I'll tell you why I share that with you. God's not pulling out a belt and beating anyone. Those that he loves, he reveals his word to. By the way, that's the entire world. And so get this picture. This isn't depicting Jesus with a lightning bolt. This isn't depicting God with a hammer and you being the nail. No, he says, I correct and I discipline everyone I love. Watch this. So be be diligent and turn from your indifference. In other words, turn from the void of truth. Turn from your indifference to what I'm doing and my presence in your life. Don't stay there. Realize that I'm with you. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 20. Look, I stand at the door. And you know what I love about Jesus, man? You know what I love about God? He's not going... Open the door, you cotton-picking rascal! Watch what it says. He says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. Hey, I'm here. And here's what we do. We look, we peek around the curtain and we say, no, can't let him know I'm here. But here's the thing. He knows you're there. And so watch this. He keeps knocking. But he knocks for one purpose. 
He says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you hear my voice and you open the door. I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Let me tell you something, man. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm not trying to stir up your emotions, but I will tell you this. You're looking at a man that was broken, hurting, lost, stuck, haunted and taunted by his past, beat down, full of disappointment and despise from my own family, from the people that I thought were my friends. And one day, I came to hear this message. God loves you. And for the very first time, something, something started happening in this understanding and in my heart. I asked the question, how could you love me, God? And I began to see directly from the scriptures that God is a persistent God. That nothing can separate us from his love. Not even a door. And he knocks and he says, I'm still here and I'm not leaving you. Listen, when everything's going good, He's with you. When everything's going bad, He's with you. When you want relationship with Him, He's with you. And when you don't want relationship with, with, with Him, He's still with you. When you outright reject Him and seek your own way or seek people or seek things or seek the material, He's still with you. And He says, man... If you just knew that all I want to do is come into your heart and feed you and nourish you and build you and encourage you and heal you and lift you and strengthen you and show you a better way and give you sight. Listen, God sees the indifference that dwells in the heart of men apart from him and it does not keep him away. Instead, he continues to knock. At the door of our hearts. Listen. God wants relationship with you. Even if you don't want one with him. That doesn't make sense in this world. And yet. We're not talking about a God that's defined by this world's love. He is love. He is love. Jeremiah 31 verses 3 through 5 says this, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I don't have time to get into all the particulars of the context for this. I just want you to understand this. This is referring to God speaking to his people, his approach to his people. But the thing about it is this, that God was always there. The one that's far away is his people here. And so it says, the Lord appeared to him from far away. He finally caught a glimpse of him. And watch what God says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you 
and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. That's just talking about his people. That's you and me. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and, and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise and let us go to Zion, to the Lord of our God. I want you to see something that God says again. Again, 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 I will build you where you've been broken. I will build you again where you've lost it all. I'll restore you again where you planted and you sowed nothing and it all came to rot. It it all came to nothing. I will bring you from there and I'll produce fruit through your life. Again, again, again. Why? Because my love for you is everlasting. God is the God of comebacks, not setbacks. (sighs) But I want you to see something here, according to these, these verses that we just read. God doesn't move. We move. God doesn't move. We move. God doesn't shift. He doesn't go to and fro in his opinion of you. His opinion is one and the same always. I love you and I'm with you. And so the Bible says that this guy, Zacchaeus, has this life-changing encounter. But it was because he came face to face with a life-giving God. In his most lonely moment where everyone is shouting him down and cornering him with their accusations, Zacchaeus steps out of life as he knew it, alone. And he embraces for the very first time that which was always available to him, God. The Bible says that Jesus declares in verse 9, this man too is a son of Abraham. In that moment, Jesus reminds Zacchaeus and everyone who they really are. He reminds Zacchaeus who he really is, a son of God. Let me tell you something. Sonship in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with you behaving like one. Sonship in the kingdom of God has everything to do with the one that loves you and created you with good plans and purposes for your life. Sonship in the kingdom of God is based upon God's love for you, not your love for him. Let's stand here today. We can all have a life-changing encounter with God because we all have a life-giving God. And as we close here, I just want to read to you a couple of verses. I'm not going to give you any interpretation. I'm not going to really give you any input, but I just want you simply to do something with me. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want you to listen to these words, but I want you to listen with your heart. I want you to envision what Jesus is saying to you as he stands at the door of your heart. And he knocks. And with every knock, there's a message and a motivation behind it that says, I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. Psalm 1611 says this. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. With eternal pleasures 
at your right hand. There's a path available to you and I. It's called life with God. Genesis 28, 15 says this. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will bring you back to this place. I will bring you back to this first love where you understand how much I love you. He says, I'll bring you back to this land and I will never, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Hey, he's working in your life right now. He's shaping and molding your heart anew. He's showing you his faithfulness. His promise is true. Psalm 139 verses 7 through 14 says this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Hey, feeling alone? Can I say this to you? God sees you. Feeling destitute? Lonely, lost, hurting. God says, even in that dark place, I can still see you. And I still love you. And I'm still with you. Right there. And lastly, Psalm 31, verse 19 through 20 says this. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. You hide them in the shelter of your presence, safe from those who conspire against them. You shelter them in your presence, far from accusing tongues. Listen, there might be people coming against you, but there's a God that's greater and bigger that is for you and is with you. Today I leave you with one simple and yet powerful truth. You are not alone. God himself, the creator of all the heavens and the earth, the God of all creation, that God is with you.